I got, I got shorts, every fucking color. I got designer t-shirts. I got gold bullets, motherfucking vampires. I got Scarface on repeat. Scarface on repeat, constant y'all. I don't know what's going on here. I was just at work for real. Like I'm, I'm just trying to do my job and I don't know. You can get a rich man if you tried. I don't want a rich man. You can't close the leads you're given. You can't close shit. You are shit. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it, because you are going out. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just uh, forgot. But uh, it's not shipping out till tomorrow, so there's no problem. Hi, welcome to Projections Podcast Series 4. This season, we're looking at work and money on screen, critiquing modern economics through a psychoanalytic lens. We'll discuss excess, pursuit, competition, livelihood, austerity, property, and post-digital work, culminating in liberation, to touch on the various trials, tribulations, and traumas of accessing the means of survival. First, we pitch them Disney, AT&T, IBM, blue chip stocks exclusive companies these people know. Once we sucker them in, we unload the dog shit, the pink sheets, the penny stocks, where we make the money. It's your choice to be a Skibby, isn't it? A Skibby doesn't come to you, you go to it. Come on, let's go to Paris's. I want to rob. And we're recording. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Mary. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. We've, I mean, you know that because we've been catching up about all sorts of things, gardening and yeah. um, how much I hate Christopher Nolan, how much you <laughs> like Christopher Nolan or like giving Christopher Nolan a chance. Um, <laughs> I don't know. So many things. We've basically been talking for an hour. So I'm like, I love catching up. up with you. Yeah, me too. I can't believe we actually haven't seen each other in the flesh in like six months. I know. I can't like you're my friend it. who I'm lives so in the computer. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I feel so grateful that we've been able to continue our work online. Like so many times I was like, thank God for the pod because I, it, it just kept me working at like a nice pace. It was something to look forward to. And it was, it, I'm, I always feel a boost after I've talked to you. So I'm just so grateful. Me too. Me too. Um, so final episode, episode eight, not six. Episode eight. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I actually like watched Bonnie and Clyde just before I called you, and I was I felt like I was going to call you crying. I was a bit tearful. Quite a sad film. Um, but this week we're going to be talking liberation mm-hmm. in uh 1967's Bonnie and Clyde and American Beauty 1999. Um. Yeah. And then that's the end of work and money. It's cool to end on this note because I feel like the term liberation sounds like, you know, there's some kind of secret solution contained in these two films that allows us to escape the nightmares of neoliberal economics. But actually, I I like that these films hint at a way out 
but still they're very ambivalent and complex. And you can see that the characters still are conflicted and they're struggling. Mm -hmm. And in a way that is the most honest portrayal of everyone's journey. Like there is no magic solution. It has to be worked through and that can be painful. Well, spoilers, Mary. Oh, you might as well finish the episode. Um, but you never know because these these uh, sessions, as I just accidentally called, called them in my head, um, do sometimes find resolutions that we didn't expect. So that is interesting. True. You never know. You just and don't know. Uh, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't sell us short. I'm sure we'll uh, we're going to put the world to rights. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah it's all going to be fine. Also, I just think, like, especially Bonnie and Clyde, like having just watched it, I just I feel like it's a nice thing to leave our listeners with a film that's just as kind of like poignant and beautiful and moving. Like it's a very life affirming film. And I just really think, you know, if you haven't, if you're just, if you're what, if you're listening and you just, you know, you, you know that you've seen it already, I would really say go back and give it a watch because I hadn't watched it since I was a teenager. And this was my first rewatch. And I was just completely floored. You forget when a film is that famous, you forget how beautiful it is and it's it's like it's stunning it's so beautiful it's so yeah completely life-affirming I just felt really lifted up by it it really throws you for a loop especially I can imagine for audiences watching it at the time 1967 that was one of the films that really broke away from traditional Hollywood filmmaking and it really paved the way for for like a new Hollywood mm-hmm. and where the violence that was depicted wasn't merely hinted at it was really depicted in a very explicit way like that final scene in the movie I mean audiences had never seen that before so it was really really groundbreaking always interesting to me when you we have when you have these um, extremely attractive performers like Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway they're so beautiful and they're so young and they're so telegenic. They're so cinegenic. And to see them go through what they go through and they, they're so like, you feel so isolated from society. They're such outcasts. They're outlaws and they're on the run. To see that level of violence juxtaposed with that level of beauty, it's always startling, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose that's kind of what cinema is or like what it, you know what it is in its kind of classical sense yeah it's really yeah it is really beautiful I was thinking about how beautiful she is as well that opening scene where it's just like really close up on her face for like five minutes it's quite a long quite a long scene and I was kind of thinking about like Instagram filters and AI and surgery and Botox and fillers and I like got an app on my phone that where it's like you can retune your face in video like not even just like on a picture you've taken but in a video and I was just thinking about all of that and all of this effort we go to to like improve beauty and then you watch something from 1967 and I've just never seen anything so beautiful it's just I don't know like I don't know why we'd bother (laughs) why we'd bother trying to improve upon that or trying to advance from that never seen anything like it in some ways, it kind of made me think of how I felt when I like first watched Thelma and Louise, where you're just so much rooting for the, the outlaws. And it's so sad to know that they're, like, they're headed towards their impending doom. Because yeah. um, I also saw some interesting like commentary after the fact. It's a period piece in the, in the sense that it's, it's made in the setting of 1930s, which is kind of loosely, very loosely based on two real criminals. 
but that the director took a lot of liberties and inserted the narrative with a lot of like 1960s counterculture references and signifiers. You know, like the guy with the chest tattoo mm. of the word love with flowers and doves, you know, it's all very like 1960s hippie signifiers. <laughs> and this idea that that generation, the young generation in the 60s were really rebelling against like the older generation and they were just rejecting outright all of the older generations like values and the way that their society was structured. But the funny thing is that they were rebelling and they were rightfully angry, but there were no, it just seems like Bonnie and Clyde seems like a really apt example of that type of rebellion and acting out with the failure of proposing something that really works. Mm. It's just this kind of like pure rage, um, which is aesthetically interesting, but functionally and structurally, when we talk, when we think of boomers <laughs> who were like, I guess, hippies in the sixties, is that right? Like they were mainly yeah. the hippies. Uh, no, I think, or maybe just yeah. a little older. I mean like, yeah, they would have been, so I guess, they would have been like teenagers in teenagers, the, in yeah, the 60s. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so like maybe, I feel like hippies were maybe a little bit older. Maybe a little bit older, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I guess the, the teenagers who were probably consuming a film like that and who were probably being very much influenced growing up in the 60s, um, you know, it, it probably, it, I, I feel like it probably just relegated the authentic emotion of outrage and desire to fight back against privilege. It probably just relegated it to this like aesthetic quality, but never really a functional one, something that you could work with and actually manifest real change for people, like social change. All those teens in the 60s who were like amusing themselves and entertaining themselves with the cultural revolution ended up just, you know, they didn't stick it to the man. They just, yeah. the, you know, boomers made a society of um, corporate servitude and like people having to obey um, in their workplace and this culture of, you know, you don't, you're not really encouraged to be creative or think for yourself. You know, you do what you do, what's in your job description, or you have the, this set of goals milestones in your life like economic milestones and you got to meet them otherwise like you're a failure you know so it's kind of interesting to contrast those things where you have depicted on screen this energy and these people this group of criminals who band together and Bonnie and Clyde who don't fit in and they're like on this uh, joyride and but they also have a lot of humanity. Like they, when they when they rob a bank, if they see like a worker, they, uh, there was that great scene at the bank where there's a guy with his own money and he's allowed to keep it because he's clearly clearly not affiliated with the bank. And so there, there's still a little bit of compassion and humanity, but it's like, it's just cosmetic. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like um, you might have to put this in a little bit before this, but I have to synopsize. So, Bonnie and Clyde, 1967, Arthur Penn. I looked up other things that Arthur Penn directed, but there's nothing as no. as uh, famous as this. But you never know. Like, sometimes someone can be really famous in the moment and then none of their work really 
survives. Um, based on the true story of American outlaw couple Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow, Bonnie and Clyde is considered one of the first films of the new Hollywood era. A bored small town waitress Bonnie meets Clyde trying to steal her mother's car. Bragging to her of his criminal record, he holds up a store and the two run away together. Picking up a mechanic and gas attendant named C.W. Moss, the three become a notorious gang of bank robbers, roping Clyde's brother Buck and his wife Blanche in along the way. But the longer they run, the faster time runs out. So the thing that struck me about this film almost at once, which I had forgotten about it, is the sex. Mm. Um, which is interesting because like we've got these two very sexual films in a way like you've got what you think are these two very sexual films like these very kind of like erosy romantic in 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 bon, in the case of bonnie and clyde really romantic mm. um films but they don't have sex bonnie and clyde um no. well bonnie wants to but clyde like immediately is like that's not what i do that's not like you can he says something like you can go back to your like small t- you can do that with someone from your small town but that's not that's not what you'll like, get from me honestly like what do you what do you think that that means what do you think the meaning of that is because you <laughs> I know we've both got theories but they're they're different yeah so my reading of it is that it's not really outright explained why he refuses to have sex it's almost suggested that it could be impotence because he carries a big gun Mm. And it's and there's that great scene where Clyde is like teasing Bonnie about wanting to like rob a store and she dares him to do it. And then like he pulls out his gun and th- that's one of some of the best cinematography I've ever seen. The way that her eyes light up when she sees his weapon and then she reaches her hand out and the camera's really panning in on her hand and she reaches and touches like the barrel of the gun. <laughs> It's great. Like, that's one of the best pickup moments I've ever seen. And um, to me, that just automatically signals someone who's overcompensating. Like, the phallic object is so dominant in the frame because there's something lacking. You know, it's actually covering up some, some lack of virility. Because it's like he's advertising something uh in the bedroom that's just not gonna happen she that's Mm. what like that's her that comes to elevate her expectations because she's really impressed with that and it's clearly all framed in a very very erotic way like it's very sexually charged so for that to follow with him like denying sexual intimacy or withdrawing from her romantically or at least physically in the bedroom it makes me think that his refusal to engage erotically is actually a symbol for his lack of power economically in that society and that um, he will overcompensate for his powerlessness by taking things by force and going on these like robberies just to kind of assert himself in that way in a criminal way. The outlaw structure is interesting psychoanalytically because it creates this topography where he is able and powerful, but only outside of the accepted discourse. You know, he's 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 a criminal and he's on the run. So he's always missing. He's always like fleeing the scene, missing from the discourse, from the symbolic order, if, if you will. But he's also missing from the erotic symbol, symbolic order. There is no sex. 
Mm. You know, there is no sexual relation. And so I think that um, what he's doing in his criminal life is really to compensate for how he perceives himself as a non-entity or a, or a persona non grata or just a non-person econom- economically. When they go on these crime sprees and Bonnie joins in, we can see that they do really care for each other. Like there's a lot of chemistry between them, even though they don't have sex and they do care about each other and they're very stylish. Like they, they look good as hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you they know? look amazing. They look amazing, but it's kind of unsustainable because they're off the grid. Like I've heard some people talk about this movie and they've, they, they said that it's kind of heroic and cathartic to see them liberate themselves from the discourse that is just boring and dull. And, you know, they'd rather like die in a blaze of glory than to just wither away old and like decrepit in a boring system that kills them before they physically die. So in some ways it is liberating. It's like, it's, it's, it's very glam to see. Also, it's really crazy. Like when they're shot in the final scene, the hailstorm of bullets, like they're, they obviously die after the first couple of shots, but there's so many, there's so many gunshots and like, it just animates their corpses mm. as if they're still alive. It made me think of like the lifeless body being reanimated the way that Clyde's impotence is reanimated through violence. I don't know. Oh, that's also amazing. I mean, it's so interesting what you say about um, you know, being an outsider, like just making yourself an outsider by like refusing to participate in sex. Because and it does, that does figure economically. Because I mean, there's the you say they say the sexual marketplace still, don't they? That's like a phrase. And mm-hmm. I like I do think that removing yourself from that sort of judgment, you know, finding your place in the order in the ratings. Um, it's really important but also like without having sex they can't get pregnant they can't be stuck or they can't yeah they, they don't take on any egg responsibility they don't take on any responsibility but I just think that I mean they're sort of so childlike throughout the film like it's a really this like beautiful kind of childlike love and they're like their movements are really childlike and the way they kind of touch each other and the kind of the things that they laugh at and like they're just kind of playing this game but it seems like he's teaching her how to prolong desire for the longest mm. possible way the idea that they like they can have that as these two people that have nothing that they can experience the like the feeling that like a rich person has when they go into selfridges and they've got money to spend wow. but they haven't decided what they're spending it on you know well the thing is that they have sex just before they die like yeah, it's right in the last true. like 10 minutes of the film it's really only when they're ready to die that they have sex. They have a lot of painful losses on on the lead up to it, on the way on the way to it. You know, you have like the scene with Bonnie where her mother is like, "You can't settle down near me. You can't live near me because you won't be safe. You can't ever do it." They're like planning for their future, and it's clear that Bonnie wants like a family and a normal life, and they're not going to be able to have it. And like it's really only kind of when they've accepted that death is coming that they have sex. So mm-hmm. I do, I don't know, it reminded me a lot of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. Uh, like continuous running away from death. You know, what they do is really liberating. Like they give themselves, they give themselves a really good run. Mm. And it's really beautiful. And I think that's what's inspiring about it. I think it just, it is basically, it doesn't matter what you do. And I think this is liberating. It doesn't matter what you do or how you get there, but you will die. 
eventually. Yeah. And they just choose, they choose to, yeah, they give themselves this prolonged childhood, I think, is what they're doing. And I think it's, wow. I think we'll come back to it when we talk about American Beauty, because there's a lot of stuff about childhood or teenagehood or youth in that film um, as well. But that's what they've, they've kind of, they've had a hard time. They've, you know, he's been to prison and she's worked in as a waitress and had this kind of, this life that she doesn't enjoy. So they've paid their dues to a certain extent. But I think, yeah, I think that avoiding sex is like avoiding death or prolonging, prolonging the end, the end of desire, which is the end of, of life, as you've taught me. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. That's so real. That's so insightfully put, Sarah. I really, really like that. And in a way, I hadn't made that. It hadn't sunk in for me, but it's so true. Like the timing of that, those sequences are important. Um, it can be totally read as maybe the life cycle of desire. Mm. There's something truly liberating in being able to uh, rise above the temptation to succumb to desire and really prolong it and really stretch it out and test its limits as far as you can. And then when you finally arrive at a place where you think, okay, I'm ready to give in, yeah. then death is just a natural thing that follows. It's very moving and it's very sad and tragic, but there's also something provocatively like comforting about it. Did you ever see the movie Basketball Diaries? I haven't with... seen it, no, with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. I've yeah, seen so was... many stills of it on Tumblr that I, you know, <laughs> like I'm so aware of it, but I've never actually sat down to watch it. Yeah, it's a good one. I mean, Leo... You know, he's he's such a genius. Even as a little kid, he like reduced me to tears. Uh, he's such a great actor, but he plays a heroin addict in it. And mm -hmm. um, the, without giving anything away about the movie, that one of the things that he says, because it's based on a real guy, um, this poet and um, who, a poet who was addicted to heroin. And he said, the best high I ever had was my very first one. After that, I was just chasing the dragon and I never met him again. Like I I, I, I kept doing heroin because I was chasing the exhilaration and euphoria of that first time. And I just ended up leading a life of misery because I never got it again. It was never, ever as good. And so if you take that kind of, um, I guess, template and apply it to Bonnie and Clyde, death is actually like such a reassurance because it means they have no, you know, they're not put in a position to have to replicate that first time. Yeah, that's, that's completely true. And I think I do, I, I agree with what you say about this being um, a film about people that are trying to live outside the system, but they don't have any better ideas for one. But I think maybe that might be the thing to accept that we, that wow. no one's got a better idea, you know, or the better idea is just a fantasy. But I think if yeah. Bonnie and Clyde teaches you anything, it's that you can you can like make your own fun, I suppose, yeah. you know, and like and like and not in the robbing of the banks or the shooting people. But you can like you can make, you know, you can have your you can sort of make your own narratives, which is what Clyde does for them. He gives them this like this huge arching narrative, yeah. which could have just been like, yeah, like a, a little spark that burnt out right at the beginning of the film. Um, oh. but it's not it's like this narrative that takes them like all the way until they're yeah until they're ready to die or until they're ready because you do get this kind of air of like sort of doomed domesticity 
you know, mm-hmm. like they're in the car together. She's like bought like a little ornament, which, like should go in a should go in a little house. It's not like a thing for on the road. It's like, That's you know, right. she's like, and so like she's having this like capitalist, like moment of sort of capitalist bliss. <laughs> look at this thing. Look at this like look at this little fingernails. Look at look yeah. at what I bought and like the thing that she's bought with money, and like they've sort of come home to the system they're like this couple who've had sex and they're going shopping and they're waiting buying food yeah and like somehow they've kind of like afforded themselves like a moment of that not that it's fair that people have to like struggle and struggle and struggle to give themselves Mm -hmm. a moment of peace yeah I don't know maybe peace is like a little bit more forthcoming to you if you haven't spent your life being able to have whatever you wanted the second you wanted that I know that's really like that's what you tell like your kids as when you're it's like very parental no, but, ideas but but it's true and in a way what you're saying is that they've afforded their own type of peace like they've been the authors of their own peace yeah. which is so important and it's so dignifying it's it's so much better than um someone who's just followed you know the company line they've just towed the, the company line and it's just anticlimactic on their last day they'd get a gold watch and told like fuck off you know um the these people at least they've they've managed to carve out some meaning for themselves mm. um i yeah that is so true you really made me look at it differently because actually looking back and just the way that final scene was shot before they you know the the, the confrontation they looked very peaceful as well yeah like you know what's going to happen to them like yeah. you're you're made aware like several scenes before of yeah. what's going to happen and it's so violent it's so incredibly violent and I do like the idea of that kind of excess sexual frustration like making their bodies <laughs> shake and maybe that yeah I'm sure that is what it is and it is I know yeah. like it seems like we're really glamorizing this like you know these two people who who were real and who weren't as like beautiful or as yeah as glamorous or as sexy um and the violence that they did but like, I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think, yeah, I think that's the reason why sex is so important. Like, a lot, all the hippies, all of the countercultural people in the, the 60s, 60s, like, you know, they they thought that, like, all of these, like, very dramatic culture-shifting things were the way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but they all just, you know, they all just ended up, like, married with children. <laughs> like, yeah. Just like Bonnie and Clyde would have, you know, just like that sort of small moment where Bonnie and Clyde are, like, a little family waiting yeah. for their, like, their, their kid in the shop. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but it's true. In a way, Bonnie and Clyde followed their rhetoric through to its log- logical conclusion. Mm-hmm. Like, they were really authentic. And it also made me think a little bit of the ending of The Dreamers, like the Bertolucci film, moving past just the barricades and walking into the line of fire kind of thing. I just love that whole film because of the the difference between, like, the American... <laughs> like the American philosophy and the and the French philosophy and how much they like they don't understand each other and um yeah I think they it's, may, it's they really may charming. Well, be from different planets. Like yeah, this. they may as well. Yeah, it reminds you like I guess like it's just like a genre defining. It's not even like a genre defining. It's like a cinema cinema defining film. So obviously oh. it has like it has such an important influence on everything else. I wonder when Butch Cassidy was. I guess it was later. I haven't watched that for a long time, but there's that same th- like thing of like they can't rest because death's coming, you know, and they like have to constantly watch it, and it's just like this is no life at all if you're constantly right. are trying to avoid death. Um, yeah, Butch Cassidy was only two years later, 1969. Yeah. 
I love that, Sarah. I'm, that's really beautiful. I have to say, I've never heard that interpretation before. Um, sometimes what I like to do after I watch a movie and I'm like a little bit at a loss about what to say is I, I'll go on YouTube and I'll just like see what people are commentating. Mm-hmm. And for some reason with Bonnie and Clyde, it was just men talking about it. And they, we were all saying the same thing. And I'm like, everyone's in agreement. And I didn't really know how to approach it. But I'm so glad that I heard what you had to say. I feel like it's settled it a lot more for me. Yeah, I think that, that you're to- I think you're totally right about it, about their decisions being unsustainable ones. I just think that maybe that's okay. Like yeah. maybe, you know, if if or if you know, if there was a sustainable decision, we would never die. It's just it maybe doesn't exist. I think maybe this episode is going to be about getting okay with death. Wow. Okay, um, I like that. So, um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, that's in keeping with our Scorpio philosophy. So yeah. that's I'm good with that. It definitely. These are both very Scorpio films. Oh yeah, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. Should we move on to American Beauty? Oh, yes. again, these are two films. I saw them in my teens. I've not watched them since. Then we picked them back up and it's like very affecting on in lots of different ways. So I'm going to synopsize. Okay. Um, American Beauty, 1999, Sam Mendes. Unhappy in both his job and his family situation, Lester Burnham becomes infatuated with his teenage daughter's best friend after seeing her for the first time performing a dance at a school basketball game. His desire sparks off a midlife crisis that sees him quit his job, take up running and smoking pot and buying his green car. His transformation provokes his wife and daughter, who despise him, to take the steps towards self-fulfillment of their own. Um, I also had not seen it in many years. I saw it at the cinema Whoa. when, yeah, back in the day when it first released. And I found it very, like, different to things I had seen at the time and it really stood out to me and I appreciated it I think there's a lot of things lost on me though like so have to, to rewatch it again now these years later as I agree it's very affecting it is I watched it with I watched it on boxing day or the tw- no I watched it on the 27th of December which is my one of my grandmother's birthdays with my cousin Maya who I'd really only just met because her Mum had married oh. my uncle like a couple of years before, so I really didn't uh-huh. know her that well. And we sat down and watched American Beauty, and I just remember, like, I, I, you know, I was like totally blown away by it. I really wanted to see it. She had like taped it off the TV, I think. So maybe this was like 2002 or something. So it must, you know, she taped it off the TV. We watched it, and um, I just remember her saying, "He gets really hot at the end. He's like super hot." And then that scene where he's like running and he's. He's um, got into shape and she was like, see, how hot is he? And I just remember thinking, no, not at all. I don't get it. Um, but I never had, a. I think everyone's had the same relationship with American Beauty, which was, you see it at the time, you're like, this is incredible. What an amazing yeah. film. And then it gets overplayed and it gets kind of parodied and then it pops up in like scary movie or like another <laughs> teen movie or one of those parody things and and then, you know, it's just, it's like quite dated. Um, and I still think it's really good. It's a really good film. But I also remember as I grew up as a teenager, my parents mm. got separated and I started finding American Beauty really upsetting in the mm. relationship between the father and the daughter. It used to really get to me. And I, and now just as a 32 year old, I watch it and, I, you know, it makes me really uncomfortable. And I think that's fine. A film should make you uncomfortable. Um, mm mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it makes me really uncomfortable. It's very, yeah, there's there's things in it that I think, oh my gosh, like, especially in, like, in these days where there's been so, such a big sort of, like, public discourse around, like, grooming children and, like, people taking advantage of youngsters sexually and uh, harassment and all of these things. And, and also it's Kevin Spacey. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Like, because, um, you know, also, you know, Baby Driver, um, you know, Ansel Elgort is in that. And he also was accused publicly of sexual assault. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. Because I actually rewatched it for this uh, in, pre- in preparation for our episode today. I, wa- I watched it with Paul. He really he thought that um, it stood the test of time, even like watching it now, it's kind of shocking even even today. It is. There's, there are some bits that feel a little bit cheesy, but there are also some fantastic lines in it. Like, you know when he goes and quits his job and his letter of resignation? <laughs> I, yeah, I thought that you, I was like thinking of you because I thought that you would enjoy all that stuff. And I remember like, because I think I must have talked about it with my dad a lot um and like I think maybe sometimes me and my dad had a conversation about it you know which was a way of me trying to have a conversation with my dad about us so but I remember him finding it very liberating and I think that like people do find it a really liberating film in terms of finding a solution of sorts you know out finding a way out of the rat race but I just I just think like the female characters in the film are so much more likable and like you know I know you're really you're the film like wants you to not like is it Carolyn Carolyn yeah the film wants you to not like Carolyn I think Carolyn's fucking amazing she's my favorite yeah. person in it she's yeah. so funny she's like so tough like I like all of the things she likes I like her clothes I like her sofa I like her roses I like her gardening shears and the fact that they match the clogs Oh yeah, and all the stuff he says about her—it's just like that's not an insult. It's no. like, super cool to have got like clogs and gardening shears that match, and it's not unreasonable to not want to spill beer while you're having sex. All of the <laughs> stuff that she's kind of vilified for is—I don't know—maybe it's just me turning and getting older, but I just no. think I just think she's just so secure in who she is. She is she is she she knows herself like she knows what she wants and she goes she goes out and she tries to get it like she's a self-starter yeah and and I think that's the thing that Lester Burnham envies because he has no purpose like he feels lost and he feels at sea with himself he's having like maybe a crisis you know of identity or he might be a little bit too young to say a midlife crisis 42 I don't know how people define midlife but so my theory is that really, like, the whole business with the daughter's friend, right? So, like, these erotic fantasies of looking at this, like, young blonde teenager and, frankly, like, very cliched, mm. <laughs> you know, like, fantasy sequences of her, like, undressing or being in the bath and, like, hanging from the ceiling or whatever. And, and rose petals adorning her naked body, and the rose petals are very important because they actually we, we first encounter the roses with Carolyn. That's Carolyn's so the one true. who Carolyn's the one who like is cleverly growing these beautiful roses with her like um combination of uh what what was it like eggshells or whatever she Eggshells miracle grow. 
Right. Eggshells and miracle grow. Exactly. Super clever. And she's doing all this even as she is very like business oriented and she and she's not afraid to get her hands dirty. I mean, literally before showing a house uh, to potential buyers, she gets down and scrubs and cleans these houses herself like she is a really hard worker and she puts a lot of pressure on herself, but she has a, she feels a sense of purpose. She tries to work on herself. She listens to like self-help tapes and stuff, you know? So she has a goal she works towards and she's um, dedicated to her task. Lester Burnham is not like, he just wants to go back to 1973 and be a burnout and like flip burgers. Like the thing that he envies is his wife's uh, erotic disposition that is clearly being recognized by someone else, another man that who works in her field, and they end up having an affair, the two of them. So I my, and that's important as well. The fact that someone else is validating her in a professional way, mm-hmm. you know, like or not in a professional way, but in a professional landscape, in a professional space, that he recognizes her value, her erotic potential, but less, but Lester doesn't, and it's so cleverly like flipped around to look like maybe she's the frigid one because she doesn't want to have anything to do with him and look at him he's masturbating in the shower he's masturbating in the bed he's ready to go he's raring to go and she refuses him he's he's creating this narrative as if the fault is with her but she tells him flat out like listen buddy you don't even know what I'm capable of like you don't know anything about me you know you haven't even bothered to ask He's not, he's not, Lester Burnham isn't exactly making a great case for her to have sex with him. Like, no. <laughs> no, it's like disgusting, that moment. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm just like, I'm so in awe of how you just did that because that's so completely true. Just the rose petals thing is so completely true. Like the idea that like the object of his supposed desire is like draped in the, in like the main signifier of his wife. Like the thing, it's like almost... It's like like almost kind of a sexual fantasy about his wife, but also, but not even just about his wife. Yeah, it is totally an envious thing. So Carolyn's sort of the main character, or like she's yeah. really the main thrust of the film. Like the film's all about her, and anything yeah. anything that's about him is to do with his kind of loss as a, in like his loss of her, but also his loss in comparison to her. Like how much she has that he doesn't. Exactly. Exactly. He really envies her. And that's why in his even in his last moments, you know, he's looking at a picture of his family. Mm. You know, he's thinking about his wife and his daughter. Yeah, exactly. So when he goes and like quits his job, I did find that very amusing because like I have (laughs) revenge fantasies about how I'm going to resign from like, like a hypothetical job. Like I find it amusing to think about sticking it to the man. But the truth is, is that he's really just a juvenile person, like, acting out. Mm. And he's he's holding this time in his life when he was just a teenager and he had no responsibilities. He was flipping burgers and getting high and getting laid. He's holding it up with, purportedly, he's, he claims that he has so much, um, such a great deal of attachment to that time. And he wished he could just go back to that time, you know. He had his whole life ahead of him. But the truth is, what he's he what he's really telling us in that moment is that he has lost his vitality, and he has to live with someone and bear witness to someone f- who's full of life, and that is killing him. 
you know, because it's a constant reminder that he doesn't feel the same way. And this whole business with it, with the daughter's friend, that's just a distraction. That's just a convenient way for him to like create something to dissociate from thinking about his real problem, which is embodied in the wife's desire, you know, like he really envies her. Um, when he catches them together, which is a very funny moment, like in the fast food drive, drive through, you know, um, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, listen, I'm really happy for you. Mm. You know, like, I just want you to be happy. Like, that is such a performance. That is not true. Because when they're at home and they try to have these, like, meaningful family, like, quality time um, around the dinner table, when he announces that he's quit his um, his, his job, she, Carolyn rightfully says, listen, you know, that means that I'm going to be the sole breadwinner here. You know, and really what she's saying in that moment is the, the equating the responsibility of like being fully in charge of the livelihood of this family. All she's really saying is that I'm working for us. You know, I'm working at us and for us. You've just given up the ghost. Mm. It's not just, you didn't just go and quit your job. You quit us. You know, you quit your life. And and in a way, like I find her the most liberated one because she's not conflicted. It's exactly as you said earlier, like she knows who she is. Yeah, she does. And like the, even like the affair that she has, like, as you say, it's like a, it's an affair with like a business colleague. It's an affair with someone who sees her. at. Like, I think that's such an important moment in your life when you're um, when you feel um like you can perform something really well like you feel like you're good at something and then you can be yeah. with someone who can watch you do that thing like rather yeah. than having to hide yourself doing that thing from the person that you're with like they can see you because sometimes you know it is like professionally that we are our most vital or we are our most alive and like sometimes you know if, you, if you're lucky enough to do something you really you're really good at it is like that's why so many people have work affairs I think because <laughs> There is something really like sexy about a person being good at their job. Yeah, um, you know, I, it's an yeah, I, It really is, um, and you're totally right. You know, he does, and all of his kind of. It's funny because like the, you know, I always thought the red in the film belongs belonged to him, and like the cold blues kind of belong to her. But I think it's like actually all colours in the film kind of belong to her because, you know, you've got the red of the roses outside, which are hers. And you've got the red doorway, which I would imagine is her design choice because, you know, she seems to make all the choices. And what does he do? He goes and gets a job with like a red uniform and he buys a red Pontiac Firebird. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, it's it's total envy. He's just mirroring her. He's just trying to kind of get a little bit of what she has. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he's totally um, kind of in awe of her extreme level of motivation to go out like her, you know, he, he wants to be a go getter like her, but he doesn't quite have it in him or maybe he just lacks confidence. And when he is, as you say, like taking on this red and like incorporating it into his own persona, it's just an attempt to try and keep up with her, mm. you know? And in the end, he, when he's lying in a pool of his own blood, you know, he is in the end covered in that color, but it's just, um, it's just a tragic thing because 
And also, I think she's wearing a red outfit when she comes she is. in. She is. Yeah. Wow, that is so true. I mean, in some ways, he's a, a very complex character because unlike Clive, uh, sorry, unlike Clyde Barrow in Bonnie and Clyde, you know, he's a very horny guy and he he won't shut up about it. You know, mm-hmm. like he's constantly going on about how sexually charged he is in his like in in, the, in his narration of the film um, or in his private thoughts or whatever. So it's like he's got this all of this energy and all of this available potential, but it's just kind of disorganized and chaotic. And so it's ruinous, you know, it's ruinous. It ruins him and it causes uh, a wedge between him and his family members, you know? And that's the problem. Like he is, that's why he's so conflicted and she's the liberated one because she, she knows what she has to do like professionally and um, ways that she can utilize her professional potential. He really has no idea. (laughs) Mm. I suppose that's maybe the point of the film is that like desire, whether you're kind of chasing the right thing or not, because like he's actually the one that is impotent. It's not Clyde who is like totally He's like quite comfortable with what he desires. Yeah. And, like it does. It, like does like realize that desire at the end of the film. But with Lester, like when he gets to that moment of having what he's like wanted for the entire time, yeah. he doesn't like he doesn't want it anymore, and he doesn't you know. And it's not like it's like it's sort of it's portrayed in the film as kind of like this good guy moment. It's like it's not <laughs> a good guy moment. It's just like it's the death of desire, but in like the totally wrong way. It's um, anticlimactic it's and it's, anti- it's also corrupt because actually we know that she was never really the the, the, the desired object. She was yeah. just an impersonator who he had like put in as, you know, a prop for his real object that he didn't really want to come to terms with, which is actually his wife and his yeah. inability to match her. He's kind of a fraud because he paints himself in that moment as like, as you say, the hero, the good guy who in the end doesn't go through the sex act, sex act with someone who's underage because he's just such a moral guy. We know that that's not really his motivation. Like he's not out to be a, a, a good role model. He literally is confronted with the fact that yet again, he's confused about what he wants. I mean, I'm, you know, I, again, like I'm... I find this character very flawed and very complex. I have, there there are some moments with him where I do find his lines really funny and his little sarcastic remarks. But ultimately, I think that he really is a bit of a fraud because he wants the whole world to know what a rebel he is and that, you know, he's going against the grain and he's like letting his hair down and like living, you know, uh, going to go and live on the wild side or whatever. But actually... Um, he's really not he's actually very conflicted he all the all the while he is uh, still very much at sea with who he is Mm. and he cannot stand that he has to bear witness to some a close one a a loved one watch them you know grow more and more into themselves when when he cannot have access to that for himself and it just annoys him (laughs) I love that Carolyn has turned into the hero of not only American Beauty but the episode unless you've got something more to say like I'm actually just happy to end on the image of Carolyn like the image of Carol Carolyn and her roses and her red dress and her like and her gun and yeah. 
that's actually yeah like the she's, I love that there's there's I did I actually forgot that there were these were big phallic gun um right she's got quite she's got like big dick energy hasn't she Caroline oh yeah total BDE mm. and she you know when she was also when she was at the gun range do you remember when what the employee said to her He's like, you know, when you walked in, I thought you were going to you're going to suck at this, but you're really good. You're a really good shot. So in other words, he totally like dismissed her out of hand. But, you know, he completely took for granted that she was able actually really capable and she was a good shot. Wow, that's so cool. I love that. I love that image. I'm really glad that we got something good out of American Beauty because I really you know, I do. I do think it's good. I'm not sure that Sam Mendes meant for Carolyn to be the hero. I'm not sure that he knew that because I think they were very focused on Lester. But even, you know, like his his name is an anagram of Humbert Learns. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like they were very, it was just going to be, I think originally it was just going to be like a straightforward story about a man who has an affair with a teenager. Mm. And then it kind of evolved and evolved and evolved. I'm not sure that Sam Mendes realized how much it evolved to the point where Carolyn is the hero. I know. I'm very happy about that. Me too. Me too. That's very satisfying. It's such, it's so nice to conclude our entire series on that powerful image. It really is. I'm going to find some great images of her for social media. Um, Yes. To Carolyn. To Carolyn. Yeah. We love you. We love you. (laughs) Um, So that is the end of Work and Money. Um, And there seems to be great excitement growing for our cult series. Um, we're going to take a little bit of time off to work yeah. on, you know, researching it and recording it. Um, meanwhile, if you would like to and you have spare money, um, you are very, very welcome to donate to us because that always makes it easier for us to find time to research and record. Um, thank you so much for all of your follows and comments and nice things that you've said and yeah and like just yeah it really it, we're really kind of feeling your presence at the moment listeners and we really appreciate it I'm so excited to see our audience growing and I have so much appreciation for the listeners out there and the things that they're getting out of these films and it's just fun to share that excitement with fellow cinephiles in a film community especially in a time when we have to fight for the cinema and we have to really make sure that we sustain it as an art form. So I feel really happy that I'm able to contribute in this way with you, Sarah. Me too. Me too. Oh, what a beautiful, what a beautiful final episode. That was so lovely. Yeah, I Um, know. It's so nice. (laughs) Well, until next time. Bye. Until next time. Bye.